Uh, So Philippians chapter 2 from verse 12, page 817. Therefore, my dear brothers, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in this warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honour people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, and we do thank you that we can gather here again today in person, that we can uh, do life together around Jesus and uh, share life uh, around the gospel. We're so thankful for your word that you speak to us through it. And today, Lord, as we hear from it, may your spirit be our work, empowering our hearts, moving our hearts to know you deeper, uh, and to just want to respond to you, to want to live a life that does please you. And so today, as we think through what it looks like to be uh, Christians, living lives worthy of the gospel, may you um, yeah, empower us to do so and encourage us to do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so these last four months, um, you know, we've been in a pandemic, haven't we? We've been, like, we've gone through this whole COVID pandemic and have been on lockdown, uh, being at home, and, and it's sort of strange because in Brisbane, we've, we're sort of in this bubble where we feel sort of safe, like there's this false sense of security, even though uh, we're seeing in Sydney and Melbourne now, Victoria, uh, how bad it's actually still, how bad it still is, huh? And uh, I don't know about you, but if you have seen online, you, you would have seen a lot of churches these last few months go online and start streaming the services, just like what we did. Uh, and if you talk to a lot of pastors, I don't know if you do have a lot of pastor friends, but you would have heard uh, from a lot of pastors that the last few weeks haven't been that easy. The last few months haven't been that easy uh, for many. We've been trying to think out how do we do online church when church is actually about people? Church is about gathering around God's word. How do we do online church when there's this, there's this thing that divides us, a screen and, and technology, and, and you know, we want to be authentic, but at the same time, 
you know, we want to also provide a, a church experience that feels like church. It was, it was difficult. And for many, it was quite stressful. I mean, you're looking at other churches that are online, and some of the, the bigger churches, they're producing this production that engages the viewer, it attracts the newcomer. It doesn't, it doesn't look like some grainy, you know, low-light hostage video in, the empty, you know, in some empty blank bedroom or someone's house. And that was the struggle for many people. For many churches, they're like, how do I do church online and still make it something you want to go to? And, and this is really difficult because you're not trying to push into some sort of consumerism here where people just go to church because it looks good. But in many ways, that's what people were worried about. You're looking at other churches and you're comparing and it's so easy for someone just to go to another church while online because you're just at home in your pajamas watching church, streaming church. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I felt a bit nervous coming back to today, you know, doing uh, physical gatherings, in-person gatherings, especially with what's going on in Victoria now and thinking, oh, what, if it, you know, what happens if it comes here to Brisbane? And what happens if patient zero is in this room? And what happens if we become that church that's in the news? And everyone talks about Providence, how you should not go to Providence because you're going to you know, catch COVID-19 there. And I was, I was thinking about this. And I, I know that sounds, it doesn't sound absurd, but you know, it, it's one of those things where you, you're worried about what people think of you, what people think of your church. Just like putting your church online public, streaming it on YouTube, or, or thinking through, hey, what if we become that church everyone knows about for the wrong reasons? You know, we care so much about our image, don't we, uh, as people? Even as a church, even though you know, we're here about Jesus, we're here about God, but still the reality is you, you do get anxious. You do get stressed out. Pastors do get worried about their church, especially going online and how hard it's been. We care about our outward appearance. But as we go through the Bible, what really matters to God? You know what I mean, right? Like it's, it's, it's our whole generation, the whole selfie generation, it's relatable, isn't it? Like we put ourselves out there on Facebook, on Instagram, on TikTok, you know, and our image matters. We care all about the followers. We care all about the people who view us and their opinion of us. And we want our families and friends to admire the things that we put online. We want them to be envious of us. We want, them, we want to make an impression, don't we? But for what? For who? For those of us here who identify as Christians, are we thinking about how we're recognized by God, how, what he thinks of us, or are we just consumed by what others, how others see us? You see, in Philippians so far, we, we heard a lot about Paul and him struggling in chains, if you remember, and how his outlook on life and how the gospel transforms his perspective on life and death, and that there's a future hope. There's a future hope in Jesus and the eternity he has, that we can have courage in that for today. And so here in chapter 2, he shifts gears, doesn't he, a little bit? He, he helps the church to see what a life worthy of the gospel looks like for them in, in practice. Uh, last week we heard from chapter 2 in the first half, uh, thinking through what does humble service, unity look like, if you remember that last week. But here we're looking at what a heart of obedience looks like. So let's look at verse 12. Let's read together. Uh, keep your Bibles open so you can follow along with me. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now there's an understanding, right, between Paul and the church, that the gospel, that faithfulness as a Christian overflows into obedience. Here he says, as you always have obeyed, right? So when you come to faith, 
you start a journey, don't you, of obedience to God. If you call yourself a Christian, then obedience is part of your faith, part of who you are. Now, understand this, it's a desire, isn't it, to live under God as our God, as our King. You know, when we come before God, we surrender, don't we, in obedience. But let's consider what this looks like. And because a lot of people, we don't like this word, don't do we? Obedience? But we can't sugarcoat it. We want, we want to seek obedience because God is worth it. Now, I know for many people outside of the church as well, the understanding of obedience to God, it sounds like he's some overlord, some dictator, right? That we're in chains, we're a slave to him. And no one likes that idea of obedience to God. But what if we understood it in the way that the Bible wants us to? Obedience is, is so hard because you know, we feel uncomfortable by it. But what if it is to do with understanding a good and great God and understanding that it's a desirable thing to live under his rule? I know for many of us, oh, I don't know if you, some of you guys are really good at following rules, but for me, it's really hard. I, I, you know, rules are meant to be broken. That's, that's always been my motto in life. Uh, bend them a little bit as long as it doesn't harm anyone. I know for many of us, we think following the road rules, oh, but they're just there for guidelines, right? <laughs> yeah, downloading pirated software, oh, it doesn't harm anyone, you know, it saves me money. You know, having large gatherings in my house during lockdown, hey, you know, it's fine, no one's going to get hurt, we don't have coronavirus in Queensland, whatever. You know, we're thinking like that, thinking the rules are only there just as guidelines. It'll be fine. But we do need them, don't we? A society needs laws. We need even police to police laws. Otherwise, there's anarchy, there's chaos, if there wasn't a legal system in place. But I know that for many of us, in our nature, it's hard to obey. Obedience doesn't come naturally to us. You see, like obedience is, is something that seems very counter our nature, counter our human nature. Uh, and so Paul actually has to write it here. Continue to obey, because that's the hardest thing to do. Now, understand this. When he says uh, obedience, it doesn't come from a heart of, of fear. It doesn't come from a heart of getting in trouble. It doesn't come from a heart of guilt either. Obedience to God isn't something you do to, uh, say, impress the pastor or impress your Christian friends. Paul's saying this as a follow-on from last week, if you remember. When you know the gospel of Jesus, the one who came to, to our earth and humbled himself to death on a cross to save you, obedience comes as an overflow of that gratitude. I know for many of us, guilt drives our obedience. I know for many of us, it's so easy to do it out of a heart of duty. As children, often we're raised in that way, aren't we? That you, you feel bad uh, if you don't make your parents happy, for example. We don't know how to receive goodness as grace and gifts. It's always driven by guilt. We feel bad. We feel like we need to pay people back if they've done something good to us. And when we understand the gospel, when we come to the gospel, it's all about grace. It's all about a gift that we can't achieve on our own. Jesus died for your sin. The temptation is, oh, Jesus died for your sin. What am I going to do to pay God back? I feel so guilty about that. I feel so guilty I put Jesus on a cross. And so you're driven by this innate guilt. Yet when we come to the gospel, and when we hear from Paul's words, we hear him rejoicing all the time, don't we? It's, a, it's an obedience that's driven by joy. You know, it, it is exhausting, isn't it, living by guilt? It's so exhausting living by duty. You can do it for a little bit, and you can do it to impress people around you, but you're going to start getting bitter. You're going to start complaining. You're going to start whinging. 
When we come to Jesus, when we come to God and we understand that he does it out of his grace, obedience becomes something that you don't have to do. It's something you want to do. You get to do it. You can pursue obedience as a joyful gratitude of a life that's been paid for rather than experiencing the the crippling, paralyzing effect if you can't. You understand when it says this, work out your salvation. How do we understand, how do we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? That, that sentence doesn't, it sounds like it's fear-induced. It sounds like it's, that's guilt, uh, guilt-inducing, you know, work it out with fear and trembling. Wow, am I supposed to be scared of God? Is that why I obey Him? Working that out comes from a place of grace, though. It's not working for your salvation, it's working out your salvation here. Jesus has died on the cross, He's raised, been raised from the dead, Now work out your salvation. Does that make sense? We work from a joyful gratitude and obedience in response to his salvation. Now, we do that in two ways. We do it with a fear and trembling. What does that mean? Well, I don't think it means to be scared of God's wrath. In some sense, we should be, that God is a big and just and powerful God. Yeah, sure. But when we come to him in obedience, uh, think about what the Proverbs say. The beginning of wisdom. What's the beginning of wisdom? It's the fear of the Lord. It's fear. I know, I know fear in everyday language. We use it every day. In, it's synonymous with being scared, right? We should be, in some sense, scared of justice. And like what we heard in, in um, the New City Catechism earlier, we should be fearful of what is to come if we don't have faith in Jesus. But when we come before the Bible and we hear fear being used constantly, there's this, it denotes a sense of awe, doesn't it? A, a sense of awe and reverence. Acknowledging God as being a big, powerful, mighty God. You know, in life, uh, we fear people sometimes, right? We watch movies and we're scared. Uh, we watch movies about stalkers and we so, so we start locking our doors and we fear the dark so we put on a nightlight and we fear those who are cruel and evil. Yet when we read the Bible, God isn't any of those things, is he? He's not cruel and evil. He's not some evil dictator. So when we come before him in fear, it's knowing that he's great and powerful and mighty and that we ought to stand in awe of him. We ought to stand in reverence of him. You know, it's that fear that you get when you stand on the edge of a cliff, right? And you stand on the edge of a cliff and you can see the beauty and the awesomeness of of nature around you, yet your knees are getting weak and you're feeling a bit fearful. You're soaking in the awe and greatness, the grandness of your surroundings, but at the same time, you're feeling, you're feeling that sense of fear. It's that unimaginable power, the might around you. That's what we do when we come before God, that sort of fear where it draws us to, it brings us to our knees. Reflected in knowing how amazing His grace is, a fear that's reflected in knowing uh, how good and great He is. Brings us to our knees, brings us to our faces on the floor, in front of majesty. When you know God, when you know his majesty, you know how great and awesome he is, we can't not but stand in reverence of him. So work out our obedience with the knowledge of who he is. But secondly, verse 13, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fill his good purpose. Now that just sounds like two different things. Work out your fear and trembling, but then God works in you to will and to act. Right? So there, there, there's a bit of tension there. A heart of obedience uh, needs to be given to us by God as well. You know that song, Amazing Grace, right? I once was blind, but now I see. God gives us a heart to see him. 
You can't fix your blindness on your own. God helps us. He heals us of our spiritual blindness so we can see him and have a heart that obeys him. If you have, uh, uh, actually, I'm just going to read this for 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. It says, but by the grace of God, this is Paul writing, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Do you see that he's holding both in hand? He works for the gospel, but at the same time, God works in him. Early on in, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, one of my favorite verses, it says, God who began a good work in you will see it unto completion. God is at work in all of us. And so we work out our fear and trembling, but God is at work in us. We both have the responsibility to live out our faith in obedience, yet God also gives us his spirit that helps us to obey, that sanctifies us, that moves us in that direction. You see, the way it really works is like two, two pedals on a bicycle. It's in sync, right? God works in our hearts so we can see who God is, but we also have that responsibility to move forward as a new person with a new and changed heart that, that knows God, that desires to live out obedience to him. It's happening in, in tandem, you could say. And honestly, honestly, all of us here, if, if you can look back on your Christian faith, can you not say, like, God has been at work in you? God has been the one that's been changing you? Man, for me, there'd be nothing in me to, to want to live for God if it wasn't for His Spirit. I want to live for God because God has changed me. Because my default is always going to be living for myself. My default is always uh, obedience for my desires, obedience to my desires, not God's. And so we need to keep praying, don't we? God will give us a heart of obedience as I live for Him. I need God's help. We all need God's help. Live out your faith in fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Right? So that's the first thing, obeying God. What does that mean for you and for me? I mean, it, in part, it means following God's commandments for you and I. There's the moral commandments. But you know, it's telling us to love God and love others, which really Jesus just sums up for us, doesn't he? A desire to live for God's glory, not ourselves. A desire to elevate his name about, above our own. It's a, a life that seeks to live in repentance of sin, turning away from sin and, and living in a manner which God's love so overflows, that, that you are so strikingly different, countercultural to the world around us. Others can see your good deeds and know God and worship him. Seek out obedience. And God will help us produce that, that spiritual fruit in our lives. But Paul goes on, doesn't he? He tells us to also be recognized, the appearance, to have one of not just obedience, but a heart of contentment. Verse 14 says this, Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky, as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. Paul's referring back to the Old Testament here, uh, to something that happened in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy. Uh, if I can just retell quickly, God's people back then were wandering around in the desert, in the wilderness, if you know that story, for 40 years. They'd just been rescued from Egypt, from slavery. They're traveling through the desert, and what did they do in the desert? They complained. They grumbled against God. They said, God, you're not taking care of us. We're hungry. We're tired. Where are you? Why aren't you looking after us? And through this period, God was teaching them to rely and trust in him. And so in Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, we read that the Israelites, they were described precisely as this, a crooked and twisted generation. 
That's where Paul's getting his words from. It's from the Old Testament. You know, they, if you know that story at all, you know they grumbled and complained to the point of actually building a golden calf to worship instead. That's where their grumbling led them. They put themselves at the center of the universe. It was all about them. God just saved them out of slavery, but so what? We're starving now in the desert. God, why don't you care? And you see that their bellies and their desires ruled over them. And so Paul uses this to help us think, what is going to make you stand out in the crowd? What's going to make you stand out to be Christians in our world around us? What if, because you knew God, that you were a generation that wasn't a twisted and crooked generation, you were one that utterly depended on him, found your utter contentment in him? If you know me at all, you know this is one of my biggest struggles, to not grumble. I grumble all the time. I know there are many of us here, even the most cheery and good-natured of us, we do still grumble at times, even if it's internally. We grumble when we, and we often say, man, God, where are you? Why aren't you taking care of me? Why don't you care about uh, the fact that I wanted that job and why didn't I get it? God, why don't you care about me because I'm still lonely and single and all my friends are getting hitched? God, why, are you, why have you deserted me? Why have you abandoned me? And we complain and we grumble against him. We start doubting his goodness in our lives, don't we? Now, to not grumble is hard. I get that. Uh, I know how hard it is to not complain. <laughs> I'm always complaining. But God invites us time and time again. We can complain to him. In the Psalms, it shows us that, about our pains and troubles, but not to grumble against him. Do you see that, the difference there? A grumbling heart against God is a heart that isn't content with him. What if we could change the way we see God, though? What if contentment is knowing God has your supreme good in mind, having a heavenly perspective on life, a life that calls instead for delayed gratification, one that's patient, that good will come in time because you have a good and great God that you trust in, to see and know deeply that the best is yet to come. Wow, that's so hard in our generation, isn't it? Even amongst all the hardships and the most difficult times, the good is yet to come. Wow. You know, our generation, we live in a generation of instant gratification, don't we? We want our wants fulfilled ASAP. Cultivating patience is no longer a virtue. And I know because I have this sin of grumbling, complaining all the time, I, I've been trying to teach myself patience. And if you follow me at all on Instagram, you'll know that I've been starting this new hobby, right? Aquascaping. Wow, it will change your world if you ever get into it. There's this whole niche world out there where people like build gardens underwater. It's, a, it's beautiful, right? And now that's just natural for me. If you know that I've been, you know, I care about my plants, indoor plants, just moved in this direction of going underwater now. Now, you know, you've got stones, you've got driftwood, you've got to put it all together, you've got soil, you've got these aquatic plants. And, you know, the whole game, this whole game of aquascaping, it's all about patience. You've got to wait weeks before you can put fish in the water because the soil is, is messing with all the chemicals and everything and you'll kill all your fish. You've got to wait weeks before the plants even grow because there's no carbon dioxide underneath the water. Did you know plants need carbon dioxide to photosynthesize? Yeah, there's, no, it's, there's none in a tank. And so you're waiting for plants to grow and it's really slow. And I'm, I'm sitting there looking at my, my tank every day, just watching it, waiting for something to change. And I have to teach myself patience. But isn't that what our lives are like? We, we get so impatient. 
I've been watching a documentary. Uh, I don't know if you've seen a History 101 on Netflix. The first episode is about fast food. So interesting, because I love fast food. But now that I know why it's such a big thing, it, it's, it changes the way I see it, right? Here's the thing, though. Uh, fast food started around the same time the microwave was invented. You know, you get the idea, right? Microwave makes food instant for us. It's really quick to cook food in a microwave. And, and so fast food just became this thing where, hey, let's create a sh store where we can sell burgers and fries and, and just microwave it all and make it get out there as fast as possible. And over time, that's just evolved, hasn't it, over the last 50, 70 years. And, and everyone wants fast food now. It's easy, it's quick. And so we go to the supermarkets and we buy instant food that you can microwave. We want this instant gratification. Our generation is all about that. We hate slow NBN in Australia. We can't stand it, how it's so slow. We, we can't stand that our job just doesn't satisfy us anymore after six months, after a year. It's our whole, whole generation has been swept up by this idea of instant gratification. And it's interesting, isn't it, that we can't fathom that, that gratification can be delayed sometimes. And it's been so dangerous to our culture. I mean, technology is good in many ways, but it's also, very, in many ways, also very unhelpful. Instant gratification means you can get pornography, you can get online gambling at the end of your fingertips. And so us as Christians, we need to really consider, how do we stand out in this world? What if delayed gratification is a way to honor God? What if that contentment in Him, that satisfaction in Him, will produce a patience that sets us apart? You know, I really want us to really think about this because it's so, uh, in our culture, we're so consumed by this in our culture, aren't we? Uh, I know many of us, we struggle with, with this idea because patience, uh, it's no longer a virtue. No one really tells you to practice patience anymore. We want to uh, max out our credit cards and buy whatever we want. And, and because money's unlimited, right, with, with that plastic, we, we want to have sexual relations with our boyfriend or girlfriend because we can't wait till marriage. We don't really care about marital sex. We want it now. We want our needs met now. And if our God doesn't meet our needs now, then we'll grumble against him. We'll find our needs met elsewhere. If he doesn't want me happy today, then I'm going to live my life in dissatisfaction of him. You know, we do this even though the gospel tells us we have everything in Jesus. So you didn't get those results at uni that you wanted. So you didn't get that job that you hoped for. So that relationship you invested in, that friend, that, that boyfriend or girlfriend holding out, oh, it's tough and you're struggling. Is God still not good? Have we not seen his immense love poured out on the cross at the sacrifice of his own son? I mean, we can be so short-sighted in seeing our struggles and we don't see the glory of God and the goodness of him being portrayed through them. But even if we aren't struggling, even when life is going well, we have good jobs, great relationships, great results. Will we be content? Will we still see our joy in God alone? Will our life and overflow of that contentment be shown in the way we do life with others around us in this world? You know, let's check our hearts. God calls us to have one of obedience and one a life of obedience and a heart of contentment. For what? So we can shine like stars amongst our generation. I really want us to consider this call for us because really it's summed up in faithfulness, isn't it? Faithfulness looks like obedience and contentment. It might not always be obvious or on the surface, you know, in our selfie image conscious culture, but it might be what's going on in our hearts, in our minds. 
how you act behind closed doors even. Faithfulness as a Christian doesn't always look like radical acts of charity, radical acts of social justice. Even though many of us might want to go out there, might want to stand on the streets and protest. Faithfulness doesn't need to always look like that. You see, while we care so much about competency and and appearance before others, God actually cares about our character. Character always trumps our competencies when it comes to faithfulness to God. You can spend your whole life trying to be a better Christian, wishing you could have more knowledge about the Bible, about being the guy or girl who does heaps at church and is involved in serving in every ministry at church, but does that mean you're living out your faith with fear and trembling? Or have you merely just put the spotlight on you and how competent you are? See, faithfulness is about character, and your character is going to be shown through the journey of obedience and contentment in God before others and behind closed doors. And I don't know if you've heard this said before, but everyone, everyone wants to be radical and start a revolution, but no one wants to wash the dishes. Isn't that true? Sometimes faithfulness is the ongoing perseverance, the daily perseverance of the Christian faith, where people might not see what you do, but God sees your heart. See, when the gospel really grips our hearts and obedience and contentment pumps through our our veins, I think it'll be really clear. People will see you and they'll meet Jesus. You'll be a star, right? Like it says, star shining brightly, reflecting not just in any image, but God's image to others. We're going to let our faithfulness shine. The problem is we don't think obedience or contentment in God matters sometimes. We think they're not important in our faith. We think being a Christian is just showing up to church on Sundays. We think God is love, so therefore he doesn't care about how I live or what I do. He still loves me. And our hearts are polluted, aren't they? They're shining for self, wanting your name to be magnified across the sky instead of God's name. And you know what I mean by this this light pollution, right? You go on road trips and you go out to the country and you stargaze and you can see all the stars. But in the city, there's all this light pollution everywhere. You can't see the stars shining in the sky. And that light pollution is the same in our hearts. It's infiltrated our hearts, filling our hearts with, with, with whatever, grumbling and complaining, filling our hearts with dissatisfaction in God. It's a heart that always wants more than God. How can we shine as stars in this world, in our generation, when we're so focused on ourselves? Right? We've got to ignite the light. Let it shine. Own the night. You see, I love how John Piper puts it, right? He says we should be like telescopes, not microscopes. Stars look small in the sky, but telescopes help us to see how big they really are. And so we need to image God and make what we see as small, big in our lives. We need to make God big in our lives as he ought to be. Right? Daily obedience, contentment in Jesus. I mean, consider the alternative. When our hearts aren't satisfied in God, aren't we as Christians and no different to anyone else? Matthew 5, 14 says, You are light of the world. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father. Yeah, we're called to be different in a warped and crooked generation. We're called to be different, holding fast to the word of life, holding fast uh, to, to God's words, knowing God's goodness through Jesus. It's so essential. It's so essential that we see this in light of the rest of the text. Paul starts this section off saying, therefore. Did you guys pick that up in verse 12? Therefore. It's a connecting word. Everything we read last week from verses 5 to 11, Christ stepped off his throne, the king stepped off his throne to serve us, to die on a cross for us. Now we're called to have hearts of obedience and contentment 
to live differently, to shine brightly in our world. The King, our King Jesus, he didn't complain, grumble. He goes to the cross in obedience to God. Will we follow in his footsteps? Later on, Paul says in verse 17, But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad. I rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. As a church, even in our obedience and contentment, we can have a heart of rejoicing. Just like Paul being poured out like a drink offering, his life is given as a sacrifice, he does that with joy. What if we could see our Christian life, one of obedience, one of contentment, as one of sacrifice, but joyful sacrifice, one that has everything in the gospel, knowing Jesus and his goodness, amidst all the hardships, amidst all the struggles that we're going to face in life, but one that seeks faithfulness because we've met the risen Lord Jesus. As we pursue a life that's like an offering to God where our lives are surrendered before Jesus, what kind of impact do you think that would make on our world? It shifts the focus, doesn't it? The spotlight isn't on you or me or our church or our reputation, but through our speech and through our words of love, through our kindness and compassion and obedience, man, we could change the world. We could make an impact on the world. We could reveal Jesus to others simply, precisely through being what God wants and intends for us to be the everyday church. Friends, faithfulness isn't just being a Christian on Sundays. It's being God's people every day. Now, it, it is sad and it is difficult for many churches and many pastors out there that we want to give off a certain image to the world around us. Slick decor, right? Good lighting, good editing. But what does that matter when we're so far off from what Jesus has called us to be? What does that matter when our hearts don't know or love him. There's, you guys know Gandhi, right? The famous Gandhi. He's not a Christian. But he, he was quoted saying, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Man, what a blow to the reputation of the Christian church. And surely he's not the only one who thinks like that. What if we could redeem that though? And what if that's our responsibility as Christians in every generation to redeem that? That your responsibility and my responsibility, those who say Jesus is my Lord and my Savior, are called to live out faithfulness. In a world that feels the effects of brokenness and hopelessness, what if we could shine brightly with courage and hope that comes from the gospel alone? I want to finish with a book called Ordinary by Michael Horton. And I really want to recommend, I always recommend books to you guys. Hopefully you guys will pick one up one day and read it. But it, this one pushes into the whole radical, restless culture that we live in. That somehow when it comes to faithfulness, we think that, okay, faithfulness needs to look radical as well. It needs to be extraordinary. And so we think being a Christian means there's, you know, we have to be a super Christian and we have to be radical, go overseas and be a missionary or be that brave guy or girl who walks up to people on the street and, and tells them if they know, you know, tells them about who Jesus is. And faithfulness might look like that for some people. But in a culture that's always pushing us to the next big thing, I mean, that's the millennial culture, you know, we can change the world tomorrow. Uh, maybe for some of us, we need to figure out what does faithfulness look like for the long run? What if we could stop and consider who we're performing for? Are we trying just to impress the people around us and make our own names big? Or is it to perform for an audience of one, for our God? What if living the radical Christian life was to live the ordinary life? One that involves perseverance in being obedient. 
and being content. I mean, that's hard enough, isn't it? We want to change the world tomorrow, but we can't even be content with today. today. Let God change the world. Just try to get through each week living out your faith. And as we do that, you'll grow deep roots. Just like my aquascape, over time, it's going to take patience. And perhaps cleaning dirty diapers as a parent, washing dishes, or joining with other Christians to pray and read the Bible, attending church like this each week, making small efforts to get to know people like at the gym or at your local cafe, whatever it might be, through the seasons and the journey of living out our faithfulness, living out the day-to-day of the Christian life, maybe in those moments, God will do the extraordinary. In those moments, in and through you, you'll see his glory shine through the ordinary. Have our pray for us. Father, we do thank you for the cross. We thank you for Jesus, that our King humbled himself off his throne to come to our world to serve us, to give us life, to give us everything we need in you. And so we do pray, Lord, in our uh, joy and in our gratitude, give us hearts of contentment, give us hearts of obedience, that we'll live lives in daily repentance, live lives wanting to turn away from our sin and and turn to you. Help us to be a people, Lord, that really shine brightly in our world, stand apart from this world, not caring so much about our own image, but caring about yours, wanting to reflect your goodness and your glory to those around us, those especially who don't know you, but those uh, in church as well, those uh, who we can call our church family. Help us to be a, a shining light to those around us so that your name can be glorified. We do pray for this in your son's name. Amen.